Psalm 55 is entitled or, or inscribed for the choir director on stringed instruments, a masculine of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked. For they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around upon her walls, and iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for they are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old, with whom there is no change, and who do not fear God. He has put forth his hands against those who are at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Father, I pray that that would be the upshot tonight, that we would say with David that we, no matter what, will trust in you. So speak to us and help us now to trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you may have noticed a pattern uh, as we have worked through these last three or four psalms. I'm beginning to think of this section of the book of Psalms as the setback psalms. Uh, namely, because we've already seen three psalms, namely verses or Psalms 52, 53, and 54, that are very similar to this one. David is facing enemies, he's dealing with setbacks in his life, and he's crying out to the Lord for help, and he's preaching truth to himself. We've seen that three times, and now we see it a fourth time tonight. And the next five psalms, 56 through 60, are very similar in their theme and in their content. So all the rest of the psalms, really, that we'll be dealing with on these Wednesday nights through the end of the year are similar. In each one of them, David is facing enemies, he's dealing with setbacks, He's crying out to the Lord, and he's also preaching the truth to himself, reminding himself of what is true. And many other psalms, as you read the book of Psalms, follow along these same lines. And I conclude that if David keeps facing the same things again and again and saying many of the same things again and again, that God must want us to really get this. 
God must want us really to understand adversity and prayer and faith and how all these things fit together. David keeps saying the same things to us again and again and again, so God must want us to learn from David's, David's observations, and he must want us to pray David's kind of prayers, and he must want us to imitate David's faith, and more than all of that, he must want us to know David's God with whom he has to do in all these psalms. So we're in the midst of kind of a thematic series. We're not just going psalm by psalm, that's true, but each of these psalms is part of a big theme that's set down here in the middle of the book, and we'll call them setback psalms. And it would be possible, really, as we work through Psalms 52 through 60, it would be possible to preach the same three or four points every single Wednesday night from these psalms. Some of you may say, well, you've already been doing that for three weeks, and now we're assuming you're going to do it again. But though we could say the same things from each of these psalms, we have seen, I hope, so far that each one of them has something unique to offer. And each one of them has something unique to offer that we've tried to focus on as we've looked. You may remember in Psalm 52, David was dealing with setbacks and difficulties. And in Psalm 52, specifically, we saw the way he spoke to his enemies about their sin. And then last week in Psalm 54, David was dealing with a very similar situation. But last week, he was mainly speaking to God and speaking to himself about his difficulties. And then in between those two, uh, in Psalm 53, we looked at David's enemies and we saw in them uh, the picture of the definition of the doctrine of sin becoming clearer and clearer by looking at what David said about his enemies. So we've seen the same kinds of scenarios, but each psalm has given us a little bit different angle on them. And there are unique lessons in all of these setback psalms. There's unique truth and application in each one regarding adversity and faith and prayer and answers to prayer and God's sovereignty and God's vengeance and so on. And tonight we'll see something unique again, Lord willing. But since much of what we'll see in Psalm 55 is very similar to what we've seen and will see, and since we're just about in the middle of this group of setback psalms, and since Psalm 55 is quite a bit longer than most of these other psalms, we're going this evening to try to paint what David says with a little bit broader brush. In other words, we're going to do a little bit more of an overview tonight um, and a little bit more of a review. We're going to see some of the same things that we've seen already in Psalms 52 through 54. And having fastened those truths, hopefully, to the walls of our minds, tonight we'll be, as, as it were, going back and tightening each one of the screws just a little bit more. Just like you do. You put in the four screws to put something on the wall, and then you go back to each one and tighten it once you've done it all completely. And so that'll be our approach tonight. And I should forewarn you before we dive in as well that we're not going to walk through Psalm 55 in consecutive fashion, verse by verse, like we might normally do. Instead, we're going to sort of bounce around the psalm tonight uh, and pull out four big themes because David doesn't necessarily put them down in an in-order kind of fashion. So four big themes from all over the psalm tonight. Three of them will be uh, largely review of things that we've said the last three weeks, and one of them will be uh, fresh and new tonight. So first, I want you to think with me for a few moments about David's troubles. David's troubles. In all these psalms, he's having troubles and again tonight in Psalm 55 you heard it very clearly he's having troubles 
Now, in a couple of the previous psalms, and in several of the psalms that follow this one, there's an inscription at the beginning of the song that tells us exactly what David's troubles were, what he was up against, who his enemies were, what no good they were up to, why he wrote the psalm. You can just scan a few of those with me and see that many of these psalms tell us from the get-go what the background is. For instance, Psalm 52 tells us that this psalm was written when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Psalm 54 tells us that that psalm was written when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, is not David hiding himself among us. And we can go back into the books of First and Second Samuel and read about these very events that these psalms uh, that gave rise to these psalms. And you see it again over in the next Psalm 56. Psalm 56 was written when the Philistines seized David in Gath. Or Psalm 59, which was written when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. So numerous times in these setback psalms, we're told from the get-go what's going on in David's life, why he is facing adversity, and why he's writing the psalm. But Psalm 55 tonight is different. There is an inscription to it, but the inscription, as you see, only gives musical directives. But no background on what's happening in David's life and why he wrote the psalm. And yet, when we read the psalm, there are hints, aren't there? In the lyrics themselves, there are hints at what was happening in David's life. We start to find out what he was up against and who his enemies were and what the no good that they were up to was and why he wrote the song. And we'll see and try to match this with what we read in the books of First and Second Samuel in a moment. But I want you to notice, before I give you the hints about what's going on in David's life, before we look at his troubles specifically, I want you, uh, I want you to know why it's important to notice these troubles. And there are a couple of reasons. One, obviously, is I want to get you into the context of this psalm. I want you to live in Psalm 55 for the next 30 minutes or so. Because if you understand better what was happening when David wrote this psalm, then you'll be able to better make sense of why he wrote it and how it applies in your own life. And secondly, I want you not only to to get yourself into this psalm, But I want you to see that David, the psalmist, is in your life as well. David understands your context, just like I want you to understand his context tonight. That is to say, when David writes these things, no, of course, David doesn't know you personally. But he knows enough about human experience, and the Bible knows enough about human experience, that all the struggles you face are in the Bible. all, All the kinds of things that we face are here. And we can see where they come from and and how they affect our souls. And the Bible provides psalms like this one that are sometimes written from exactly the kinds of situations that we find ourselves in. So that if someone reads Psalm 55, many times someone may read it about the familiar friend betraying David and go, man, I know exactly what that's like. So we want to get ourselves into the psalm tonight, but we want to realize that the psalm already knows us very well. David and the Holy Spirit in back of him understand your context and offers words of help. So just see if the troubles that David faced sound familiar to you. And we can just sort of divide them up like this. First, notice that David faced troubles without. He faced troubles without. 
In this psalm, he's not dealing with his own sin as he was in Psalm 51. He's dealing, obviously, with other sins against him. Just look down and let me give you the bullet points. He was facing, verse 3, anger. He was facing, also in verse 3, someone who is bearing a grudge against him. Also, verse 3, someone who, whose words were angry and jealous words. Someone who is apparently slandering David or perhaps threatening David. He was facing, verse 9, violence and strife in his city. Mischief, verse 10. People were dealing with David underhandedly. Ever experienced that? Oppression, verse 11. David was being treated unfairly. And then in verse 21, we see that he's dealing with someone whose words are smooth like butter, who is a deceiver. Someone who says all the right things, but you know that he's just lying through his teeth. And then in verse 20, um, we find that he was stabbed in the back. Someone who made a covenant with him, made a promise to him, came and stabbed him in the back. And I just go through that list um, to say, perhaps in your life, not all from the same person as was the case with David or in the same situation, but I wonder if you ever face any of those things. Someone who's angry with you. Someone who's holding a grudge against you, verse 3. Someone who is jealous, also verse 3. Violence and strife in our city, perhaps sometimes in your neighborhood. Mischief, where someone's dealing underhanded with you. Oppression, where someone's treating you unfairly, maybe because of your faith, maybe because of your skin, maybe because they just don't like you. Deceit and smooth words. And do you ever deal with being stabbed in the back where someone tells you one thing and they go and do exactly the opposite? I go through and point out David's troubles from outside of himself to say that David knows our context. And so does the Holy Spirit who inspired this psalm. This psalm uh, touches many of our lives, and perhaps some of us it touches our lives at various points and in various relationships. David had troubles without, but notice that those troubles without, and here's where it really hits close to home, gave rise to troubles within. Verses 4 through 8. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Troubles without caused him to have troubles within, and those are usually more difficult to deal with, aren't they? And doesn't this prescribe uh, or describe perfectly what often happens to us when we face troubles out in our in our daily life from other people those troubles that are out there seem to follow us home don't they those troubles that are out there seem to be able to seep inside here as well and that can be all the worse and so this psalm is for all the people who are beset with fears, verses 4 and 5. It's for you if you can't sleep at night sometimes for worrying about things out there. It's for people who say to themselves, I know I should trust God and I shouldn't worry, but I just can't help it. It's for people who live in verses 4, 5, and 6. This psalm is for people who sometimes just go, I wish I could just run away from all of this. I wish I could just be like this dove and take wings and fly away. David understands what you're going through, and the Holy Spirit through him has words in season for you tonight. So he has troubles from without that create troubles within. And thirdly, most obviously, I want you to notice that these troubles were all up close. 
They were up close, verses 12 through 14. It's not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, now talking to the, to the oppressor, it's you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Those are the most difficult troubles of all, aren't they? It's one thing when your coworker doesn't like you or when your neighbor has it in for you, but it's another thing when it's your spouse or your kid or a fellow church member or a longtime friend or a parent or an in-law or a sibling or the list could go on. And that's the kind of thing David is facing. He's facing trouble up close. He's facing trouble from a familiar friend, someone who, whose uh, anger and whose oppression and whose deceit he can't just shrug off. It's not that simple. And we're not positive about who David means here. As as I said, the inscription doesn't tell us exactly what the situation is. But probably David here in these 12 through 14 in these verses is speaking about a man named Ahithophel. Some of you may know of Ahithophel. David's son, Absalom, rebelled against David and tried to become king before it was his time. And if that weren't bad enough... David's longtime counselor, Ahithophel, the man who had been so loyal to David and so helpful to David with all of his wise counsel, went with Absalom and turned against David as well. And I just want to read you a couple verses in 2 Samuel 15 that describe what happened, verses 30 through 31. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. He's leaving the city because his son is trying to uh, usurp the throne. And his head was covered and he walked barefoot Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. Now that last sentence sounds a lot like Psalm 55, 9, doesn't it? Make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. 1 Samuel 15, 2 Samuel 15, Psalm 55, 9, confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. And so given the background, given the situation, and then given the comparison with what David says in 2 Samuel and here in verse 9, it's quite likely that David is writing about Ahithophel. And I point all that out just to, just to ask you if you've ever had your own personal Ahithophel, a friend who's betrayed you or walked out on you, a family member who has turned on you or wounded you deeply. Some of you have had a spouse or a child to abandon you. Some of you have had a spouse or a child who's like the older prodigal son who didn't abandon you in in his living quarters, but he just abandoned you or she abandoned you in their heart. And if you've ever had someone that close to you wound you like this, you can understand where David's coming from. And probably you still sometimes wrestle with the emotions that come with that, wrestle to forgive that person, wrestle with fears that it may happen to you again from another source and so on. Sometimes some of you may look at, at your extended family and just say to yourself, oh, that I had wings like a dove and I could fly away and be at rest. Oh, that I could just be rid of all this mess. And so if you have family pain, or if you know what it's like to be stabbed in the back by a friend, Psalm 55 may be a great help to you. And if you haven't known those things, as we said last week, just wait. 
and file this psalm away because someday it will be very apropos and very helpful to you. So I mention all of David's troubles just to try to get you into the scene and to ask if perhaps something that David is dealing with is something that you're dealing with. So that when we hear how David deals with it, we might say, aha, I can do that as well. So those are David's troubles. They're not wholly unlike many of our own troubles. But then I want you to notice in the midst of those troubles, David's prayers. That's the second thing. David's troubles, now David's prayers. Now, of course, most of this psalm is a prayer. David is rehashing his troubles and sizing up his enemies and groaning over them both. And all of this, most of it anyway, is addressed to God. There are a few occasions where he addresses himself or his enemy, but almost this whole thing is a prayer. But when I speak about David's prayers now as this second heading, specifically what I have in mind are what he asks God to do, his petitions. So when we look at the things he asks God to do, when we look at his petitions, we'll see a lot of overlap with the last three psalms, and we'll say some things that we've said before, but we need to hear again what he says. How does David pray, and how should we pray in the midst of adversity? I'll be relatively brief since it's review, but just notice two things about David's prayers. First, notice that they were desperate. David's prayers were desperate. We said the same thing last week, didn't we, from Psalm 54. And we see it again tonight in verses 1 and 2. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint and I'm surely distracted. You hear it, David says four times there, Give ear, listen, answer, give ear. Oh, please listen, God. Please, please, please listen. It's like a child that wants to spend the night with their friend, right? And they come to you and say, oh, please, Daddy. Please, 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 please. That's what David is doing. Please hear me. He says it four times in a row. And then at the end of verse 2, he tells us in his prayer posture that he's distracted. In other words, the picture here is not of somebody sitting at the table with his hands folded quietly praying uh, with his head bowed. The picture here is more like someone who's pacing up and down the room, who's maybe running his fingers through his hair, rubbing his temples. He's distracted, he's distressed, he's restless, he's desperate. And he gives us one more hint of his desperation in verse 17. Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur. He's not just praying once a day. He's praying all through the day because he's desperate. And I just say in passing, I wonder how often you and I pray like that. How often are we desperate for God to intervene? I know we pray for God to intervene, all of us. And I know sometimes we're desperate. But sometimes the desperation and the prayer don't meet. Sometimes the desperation turns itself into worry or just trying to fix it ourselves. But how often is it that we actually pace back and forth and groan restlessly in prayer like David's doing? Is there anything that important to you that you would pray that way about it? David's prayers are not only desperate, but they're also direct. Direct. I just want you to notice But he does not feel the need in this psalm to use churchy words or form prayers or to pray according to any sort of prayer etiquette. We already saw that he's he's roaming back and forth. He's restless. He's distracted. He tells us in verse 17 that he's complaining and murmuring. 
That's not a self-criticism. He's not complaining and murmuring in a bad way. He's just being honest with God. God, this is really messed up. I don't know what to do. That's what he's doing. He's not, he's not saying it the way that we might say it in a service on a Sunday morning from the pulpit. And then notice also that he's not hesitant about what he's asking. He's direct in the way that he talks and he's direct in what he asks. Look at verse 9. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. And then in verse 15, let, this is surprising, let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling in their midst. Those are aggressive prayer requests, aren't they? David is not beating around the bush here about what he's hoping God will do. He's not being mealy-mouthed. In other words, when David comes and asks God to do these two things, he doesn't say, God, if it's possible, um, maybe you could X, Y, Z, um, if that would be okay, and if you could do that. That's not how he talks, is it? Now, of course, there's a place for deference, isn't there? There's a place when we come to God not to be demanding, but to say, not my will, but yours be done. But there's also a place for us to come boldly before the throne of grace, to not be afraid to ask God for big things. Jesus died, didn't he, so that we'd have access to God, so that the way would be clear, so that we would know that God wants to hear us. And if God wants to hear us, we don't always need to be qualifying our prayers and sort of backing up away from them like we're not really sure we want to ask or not really sure that God wants to hear. Sometimes we back up from our prayers and we qualify them because of unbelief. In other words, without saying out loud, sometimes we think, or at least I think, if I can be really kind of generic about this prayer and uh, sort of backpedal while I'm saying it, then God can't mess up. You know, if I put lots of addendums on it and qualifications on it, then God won't, even if he doesn't do anything, then, then he'll be in the clear, and I won't have to be disappointed. But David had more faith than that. I just want you to see, David had more faith than sometimes I do when I pray. He didn't backpedal, he wasn't mealy-mouthed, he made clear, direct requests. And remembering reverence, remembering not my will but yours be done, we can come to him and make clear, direct requests and trust that he will hear and that he'll give us what is good. So what, what is it that's troubling you? As you listen to David's troubles, is there any pain or grief or worry or uncertainty or fear or uh, aggravation about the culture at large or aggravation in your soul that God has, has put on your heart tonight? Whatever it is, get on your face in desperate prayer and be direct with God. Just tell him what you hope that he'll do and trust him to give you what's good. And let me say a word or two about the request in verse 15. I said it was surprising because it doesn't seem like we would want David, what we would want David to say, does it? He says, let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol. I'm not sure exactly how someone goes down alive to Sheol, except for the one case in the Old Testament where the earth just opened up and swallowed people alive and then closed back on them. Maybe that's what he's asking God to do. But it's a strange request, isn't it? We would read the Bible and read the New Testament especially, and we would say, shouldn't David be saying, Lord, please open their eyes and let them see Jesus, and then we can all be friends. That's what we would think David would pray, right? And maybe David should have prayed something like that. Probably we should pray like that when people hurt us. But I'm thankful here for the Bible's candidness. 
Because I don't sometimes feel like praying, let them come to Jesus and let's all be friends. Sometimes I feel like praying, let the earth split open and let them go down alive to Sheol. I don't pray like that about any of you. Um, But sometimes I feel that way. Sometimes I'm sure you feel that way. And while it's helpful to think about perhaps what we would want David to say or what we should probably be thinking, wanting that person's best, wanting to turn the other cheek, it's helpful to remember those things. It's also helpful to know what David did pray and to realize, as we saw in Psalm 52, that there is a place for praying God's wrath upon evildoers. It's better, at the least we can say, it's better to pray for God's wrath than to take it into our own hands. So we notice David's prayers and we want to imitate them, especially his desperation and his faith to pray directly. So David's troubles, David's prayers. Now thirdly, very briefly, we'll notice David's faith. David's faith. Again, this is something we saw last week, but again, it's worth noticing again this week. David does not just present his request to God. He believes God for an answer. And David does not just believe God for an answer, but he reminds himself throughout this psalm of God's promises to answer, of God's faithfulness to his people. Listen as he seven different times preaches God's faithfulness to himself. Verse 16, As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Verse 17, Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. Verse 18, he will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. Verse 19, God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old. Verse 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. The second half of verse 22, he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And then verse 23, but you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. So seven times after praying that God would do what God needs to do, after praying that God would rescue him, seven times David reminds himself that God will help, that God will hear his prayers, that God has not forgotten him, that God is faithful. Seven times he does that in the space of these last eight verses. He's taking the truth and seeding and reseeding the soil of his heart with truth. He's just putting down more and more and more seed to make sure that he keeps believing. He's telling himself the truth again and again and again. And this isn't psychological gamesmanship. This isn't, you know, if I tell myself something enough times then eventually I'll believe it's true. That's not what David's doing. Because he's not just telling himself something, he's telling himself the truth. And he knows that the truth about God and his faithfulness is powerful. And he knows that if he keeps sowing the seeds of that truth on his heart, they will eventually spring up in faith. And he'll become like a tree, Psalm 1, that does not wither in days of trouble. That's the reason, you know, why some of us have such a hard time believing God, because we don't put his word on our hearts enough. His word is what gives rise to faith. And if we want to believe God's promises, we've got to keep sowing them on our hearts. And I commend this approach to you. Pray to God and then preach the promises to yourself. Promises like verse 22, he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Or like Isaiah 43, 2, which we sometimes sing, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Or Matthew 28, 20, 
I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or my personal favorite, Romans 8.32, He, God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God would give us his best, why would he withhold anything less costly to him? And if I myself are only better at this, seeding the promises across the soil of my heart, preaching the promises to myself, how much less time I would spend depressed and distracted and worried and so on. So David has troubles. In response to those troubles, David lifts up prayers. And he doesn't just lift up prayers, but he has faith to believe that God will answer those prayers. And then finally... This psalm not only reminds us of David's troubles and David's prayers and David's faith, but it reminds us, fourthly, of David's son. David's son. And I'm not thinking about Solomon, of course. I'm thinking about David's greater son, Jesus. David's greater descendant. Doesn't this psalm sound like it could have been written by Jesus? Doesn't it? Let me just read you a few portions. Picture Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' own inner circles, one of his familiar friends. Picture him surreptitiously slipping into the night and selling Jesus off for 30 pieces of silver. Picture him leading a band of armed soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus with swords and clubs like a common criminal. Picture this friend of Jesus betraying him with a kiss. And then read verses 12 through 14. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Now, of course, we know that Judas was not Jesus equal in a theological sense but they were friends they were side by side and Judas walked with Jesus and he was his familiar friend and so we can well imagine perhaps that this passage may have been one of the passages that Jesus quoted as that day in Luke 24 he walked along the road to Emmaus explaining to those two confused disciples how all the Old Testament was really about him we can imagine Jesus that day perhaps talking to them about the Passover lamb, and then segueing and saying, and just like the Passover lamb is a foreshadowing of the greater sacrifice that would come, think about Psalm 55. The betrayal that David experienced at the hands of Ahithophel is a foreshadowing of the greater betrayal that would happen to me. And we can say the same kind of thing when we read verses 4 through 6. Those verses, don't they sound a little bit like Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? Listen to verse 4. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. And now listen to Matthew 26, 38. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. What about verse 5? Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. And then what about Luke twenty-two forty-four? Being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And then verse 6, I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. 
compare with Matthew 14, 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. You see, the things that David prays about his trembling and his heart being in anguish and being at the point of death and asking God to take the difficulty from him are the very same kinds of things that we find at the end of the Gospels, aren't they? From the lips of Jesus. And so this is another one of these Old Testament passages that is about more than initially meets the eye. Now, not every passage, of course, is an amazing foreshadowing like this where we can draw one-to-one exact comparisons. Some passages point us to Jesus simply by pointing out our need for a Savior, like Psalm 51. Some passages directly prophesy about the Savior, like Isaiah 53. Some of them simply point us to Jesus by reminding us of his lineage. As we read through the Kings and see how God prepared and sometimes preserved one last relative from the family of David so that the line would not become extinct and so that we would have the line from the tribe of Judah. So we need to be careful not to try to look for foreshadowings like these in every single place in the Bible. And when we see these kinds of foreshadowings, we need not forget that there are other things for us to learn as well. That's why we've looked at Psalm 55 for its lessons about prayer and faith and so on, and not just its messianic foreshadowing. Nevertheless, let us also remember, no matter what portion of Scripture we're reading, let us remember Luke 24, 27, where Jesus, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, explained the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So this psalm is not only about David. This psalm, like all the scriptures, is about the son of David. And with that in mind, namely that this psalm is as much about Jesus as it is about David, I want to conclude with four brief Jesus-centered sort of applications. The first is this. Psalm 55 is a reminder that we must read the Old Testament the way Jesus read the Old Testament especially the way we see him reading it in Luke 24. All the scriptures, he said, in some form or fashion, point us to him. God, Colossians 1.18, has ordained the world so that Jesus might come to have first place in everything, including in the scriptures. And so we need constantly to be reminding ourselves to read the Old Testament that way. Sometimes when I'm just doing my initial notes with pencil and paper, preparing for sermons, I'll take a red pen and at the top of the page write J-E-S-U-S in big, huge letters so that I don't forget when I'm looking at Psalm 55 or 57 or whatever it may be that somehow I need to see how this passage prepares or points to or prophesies Jesus and bring that to you on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning. Elsewise, I fail to read the scriptures the way Jesus reads them. And we need to do all of us the same as we read them on our own. We've been saying this already, so I'll move quickly to a second point. The second application is this. Psalm 55 is a reminder that David is not the only one who understands our setbacks. David is not the only one who understands our setbacks. Now, we said this early on, right? One application at the beginning of the sermon was that David experienced the same kinds of troubles that we do. And he wrote these psalms out of those experiences so that the psalms identify with all the ups and downs of life. And I suppose that's why the psalms are so beloved by Christians in every generation. Because there seems to be a psalm for every person. 
in every situation and every season of life. But under this last main heading, we've been reminded that like David, Jesus also suffered like we do. He knew what it was to be betrayed, verse 13. He understood what it was to be in anguish to lie awake at night. He understood, verse 5, what it felt like for your heart to race because of the difficulty that you're facing. He knew, verse 6, the desire to just escape from it all. And so the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.15 that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And that's why, verse 16, we can approach boldly the throne of grace and expect to find help in time of need. Because we have a Savior sitting on that throne who knows exactly what we're going through. And Psalm 55 is a reminder of that. Or as the old spiritual song put it, Jesus knows all about our troubles because he's been through all the same troubles. Jesus knows all about our troubles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. Thirdly, Psalm 55 is a reminder that God really does work all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things, even our setbacks. What, humanly speaking, could be worse than being betrayed by your own familiar friend to the point of death? One thing, the Son of God being betrayed by his own familiar friend to the point of death and to be nailed to a cross. But that betrayal, leaping over into the New Testament, worked for the greatest good that the world has known, didn't it? And if that betrayal, if this kind of Psalm 55 betrayal worked for the world's eternal good, then surely all of your other smaller betrayals and setbacks and trials and griefs and sicknesses and difficulties will be worked by the hand of the Heavenly Father for your good. Never forget the end result of Jesus' great agony and suffering and know that your end result will be good as well. And then fourthly, finally, we should say that the foreshadowing of Jesus in Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, is a reminder of why Psalm 55, verse 16, is true. The foreshadowing of Jesus' suffering in verses 12 through 14 is what makes verse 16 possible. The whole reason why God will save any of us when we call upon him, whether it's saving us from our own sin or from the sins of others or from the sorrow that is in the world because of sin, the only reason God will save any of us from sin and its results when we call upon him is because Jesus died for sin, right? Because he was betrayed by his familiar friend, that's why sin was paid for. So he died to redeem me and you from the consequences of our own sin. And because he died, you and I, who believe in Jesus, will someday be rescued from the effects of sin that make this world sometimes so miserable and confusing and hard to bear. All of our rescue from sin, our own sin and from the sin that's in the world, all of the rescue that is ours is our rescue because Jesus was betrayed by his familiar friend. Because Jesus was betrayed, because Jesus died, we who trust him 
have forgiveness of sins, and we have a home prepared for us on high so that someday our prayers will be fully and finally answered. Someday God will, verse 18, redeem our souls in peace from the battle that is against us. Someday, because of Jesus, we who believe in his name will, verse 6, fly away and be at rest.